Let us pray together. Father, as we come before you this morning, we ask that you would speak to us clearly as we look into your word to discern what you would teach us about prayer this morning and prayer in the life of this church. Guide us, we pray. Speak to our hearts, Lord, and instruct us about Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be continuing this morning our series, which has been entitled, This is My Church. And today we will be talking about where prayer fits in the life of the church. By way of introduction, I'd like to ask you, what do you think of when you think of the word prayer? Perhaps you think of your quiet time. Maybe you think of a posture like kneeling. Maybe you remember the concert of prayer, prayer services that we've had from time to time. Maybe you remember Wednesday night prayer meetings. Maybe the memory of the pastoral prayer or the prayer that happens in the middle of the service is what comes to mind. Maybe you remember some time when you've been at a retreat, perhaps out in the fields praying. Maybe you remember actual prayers that are from Scripture, the Lord's Prayer, maybe the the dedication prayer of Solomon in the temple. Or maybe you remember sometimes the exhortation that you've heard to pray through Scripture. Maybe one of the guidances that you remember is the famous acronym that's mentioned many times, the acronym of ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. And then maybe some of you who have learnt that already say, oh, wait, 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 before we get to adoration, we have to do confession first. So instead of being ACTS, it becomes CATS. And then you say, wait, 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 we shouldn't end with supplication, we should probably end with Thanksgiving, then it becomes CAST. And then those of you who are a little bit more mature say, wait, what about intercession? But the problem with intercession is it makes the acronym a little bit unpronounceable. So then you think, what can we do to make this acronym a bit more pronounceable? Maybe we need another T and we can make it static. But maybe as you hear about prayer as a topic in a sermon, maybe you're filled with insecurities. Maybe you're hating and hoping that no one asks you to pray out loud because you don't know what to say. I had a friend in Sunday school, and we were required to pray. We would go around the group, and everyone in the Sunday school had to pray. And he was terrified of praying, but he had a a terrible uh, habit, which was after he prayed a sentence in his prayer, he would put the word and automatically, which would force him to think up another thing to pray. And he'd pray, dear Lord, thank you for this day, and and then he'd be stuck. He wouldn't know what to pray next. So then he'd have to think up something else to say, and then he'd automatically put the word and again. He'd have to do this about five or six times before he'd wise up and not say and and say amen (laughs) at the end. Like my dad says, some people when they're praying, they're like pilots. They have problem landing. (laughs) Maybe you have no problems praying out loud. But maybe you're a little like me. You find yourself in the middle of the prayer and you're trying to think up important and interesting and novel things that you can say to impress those people who are listening to you. As they say, confession is good for the soul but bad for the reputation. (laughs) Or maybe, like me again, you find yourself in the middle of prayer and you suddenly become aware that you're praying. You've been praying for five minutes and you haven't been aware of it. You don't know what you've said. You don't know how you got there. Maybe when you think of prayer, you think of prayer meetings that you've attended. And the person is praying and he's going on and on and on and on. 
And as my dad used to say, you start praying with them. Then you start praying for them. Then you start praying against them. Lord, when is this guy going to stop? Maybe like this sermon. But perhaps once it actually comes down to the real application, your response is a little tired. You say, yes, yes, I know. The guilt sets in because inevitably we say, yes, you need to pray. You say, yes, I know I need to pray. Being told to pray is like being told to exercise more, improving your diet. And if you're my age, it's like being told you need to start your retirement savings. You're like, yes, I know, I know, I haven't done it yet. And Hugh's saying, you haven't done it yet, you haven't started yet. (laughs) Or maybe it's like watching less TV or eating more green vegetables. If you're from an Asian or Eastern culture, maybe there's contempt when you hear the word prayer because inevitably the person in the pulpit is going to tell you how he woke up at 5 o'clock that morning or maybe even 4 and how he spent great time with the Lord wrestling in prayer. And you're just rolling your eyes and saying, the last time I tried to wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning, I couldn't. So I'm not sure where you're coming from this morning. But I would like us to take some time this morning as we look in this passage in Colossians to glimpse into one prayer of Paul the prisoner as he writes to the church at Colossae. Now, why did I select this passage? Colossians, indeed, is a very Christ-centered book. But why this passage? It's not an exhaustive treatise on how to pray. Neither is every aspect of how we're supposed to pray discussed. Paul starts off his prayer saying that he's thankful to God for the faith and the love that is fueled by the gospel in in the church at Colossae. And this prayer is certainly not unique. As he prays to the church at Rome... He thanks God that their faith is proclaimed in all the world. As he, as he writes to the church in 1 Corinthians, he thanks God for his grace has been given to them, the people in, Corinthian, in Corinth, in Christ Jesus. In the book of Ephesians, he says, Ever since I heard of your faith and loved, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. In Philippians, he says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is good, what is best, and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, he says, I thank God continually for your work which is produced by faith and prompted by love. In 2 Thessalonians, he says, I ought to thank God for your faith is growing more and more, and your love for one another is increasing. In 2 Timothy, he says, I remember you constantly in prayer, reminded of your love with the tears that we had at our parting and your sincere faith. It is love and faith that is a recurrent theme in many of the prayers, not all of the prayers, but many of the prayers that Paul brings as he writes these letters to the church. To the, uh, when Paul writes to an individual, Philemon, he says, I always thank God for you because I hear of your love for his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. We can see this pattern of prayer, not only to the Colossians, but to many churches, to churches and to an individual. But I think what happens in the book of Colossians is that this prayer is fleshed out more than it is in other places. When Paul was writing to the people at Colossae, he was writing to a church which was struggling with distractions that, was, that could come to them. Various ideas had been brought up that they needed to be circumcised, that perhaps they should be worshipping angels, 
There were various rules circulating around the church about things that they should and should not eat. All of these things that had the appearance of wisdom, of self-imposed worship, but false humility. And Paul, even though he's in chains, as he thanks God for their faith and their love, he relentlessly points back to Jesus in the book of Colossians. Our book's context as we look, I'll give you a very brief overview, is that Paul praises God for their faith and their love for one another. He gives us a wonderful and awe-inspiring look into who Jesus is. And even though he's in chains, the wonder of God's revealed mystery seems far more important to him and consumes the bulk of this letter far more than his situation, which is just mentioned in passing in the closing verses of the book. In chapter 2, Paul informs them that he's been struggling for them, for this church at Colossae and also in Laodicea, that being encouraged, he prays that they would be knit together in love and that the love would reach its fullness in the knowledge of the mystery of God. And what is this mystery of God? That in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He, pr- he continues that nothing, hoping and instructing them that nothing should divert their eyes from Jesus, as reasonable and as plausible as these things may seem. He urges them to continue in Christ, live a life which is worthy of your calling, so that you will not be taken captive to the foolish arguments and philosophies that draw you away from the truth of Christ. Those things belong to your old life. You are dead to sin, and now you are life to Christ. It says in chapter 2, verse 13, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness. In dealing with these distractions and false teachers, he, he tells them to remember that you have died with Christ to the things of these worlds. And again, he points back to the completed work of Christ in history and in the life of all believers. Then he continues to raise their eyes. He says, since you have been raised, seek the things which are above. Set your minds firmly in heaven where Christ is seated. He says, and flowing from your status that you have in Christ, put to death all wickedness and malice. Put to death those things of ungodliness and put on righteousness and holiness. Ultimately, let Christ rule in your heart. Let Christ's words dwell in you so richly that you overflow with thanksgiving and teaching and instruction and words of grateful worship. Even when he hits the, uh, the, the topic of submission, he relates it back to how we are related to Christ. And finally, when he asks for the church to pray for him, the thing that he requests is that he may be able to declare the gospel clearly even to the Gentiles. Now, I hope that you will agree with me that even in this cursory survey of the book, that this is a Christ-saturated book. And I hope that as we take some time this morning to go through how we should be praying in the church, you will not only be f- you will not see a list of rules on do's and don'ts on how to pray, but finally that you would see the church's saviour, Christ himself. For the problem with prayer is not so much the mechanics of prayer, but is that we need to see Christ our saviour. Paul informs us of what he's been praying about, and like I said, he fleshes out some of the details of his thankfulness for their faith, 
and their love for one another. We'll be starting in uh, chapter 1. I will be going very briefly through verses 3 to 7, but I'll be spending more attention, sorry, 3 to 8, and then I'll be spending a bit more attention in verse 9 to 14. Verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it is just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told, told us of your love in the Spirit. Like I mentioned before, faith and love for all God's people is mentioned here again. But what we see in this passage is, is that it is faith and love which springs from hope, hope that is found and stored up for them in heaven. And this hope has been made known to them through the message of the gospel that they have heard. He continues on that the gospel continues to do what is characteristic of the gospel, that it bears fruit. It it bears the fruit of faith and love, faith towards God and love for one another. And this gospel fruit is a result of the fact that the minds have been opened to God's grace. He tells them that Epaphras has been also struggling for them on their behalf. And we see at the end of the book of Colossians that Epaphras has been struggling and, and praying that they would become mature and unshakable, fully assured in all of God's will. Now, in response to this fruitful gospel and the wrestling in prayer of Epaphras, Paul continues and prays even more. And this will be our focus in verse 9 through 14. Now that they have been saved, surely he would move on to praying for other things, perhaps praying against the false teachers, asking them to pray for the fact that he's in chains. And yet he continues on with Christ-centeredness and gospel focus. It did come to my attention reading through a number of the prayers in all of the epistles in the, Old, in the New Testament that very infrequently do we hear prayers relating to people's health, even the political situation that would have been uh, very pressing, perhaps in 1 Peter where there was persecution for the church. I'm not saying that these shouldn't have a place in our prayers, but it should give us an idea of where our balance should be founded. Verse 9, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, We have not stopped praying for you. I don't get the idea that Paul is just putting his, you know, his usual, uh, you know, uh, uh, letter opening here. He's not saying, you know, dear Church of Colossians, how are you? I'm fine. That was how I was taught to write a letter. He's not just writing his, his, you know, his uh, box standard uh, letter opening here. He's never stopped praying for them. In verse 9 it says, We continually ask God to fill you with knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. We see his fervency here. He's been continually asking. And in the face of all the false teaching and the harmful distractions that could have been coming to the church, Paul prays that God's will, that God will grant them knowledge of his will through all wisdom which is imparted by the Holy Spirit. 
wisdom and understanding is a work of the Holy Spirit of God. And it is the Holy Spirit that we learn in John that leads us and reveals us into all of God's truth. Now, what is the church? We learned last week that is not only the fact that we belong and that we have been united to Christ, but that we have been let in on a great secret, that God's eternal purpose has been to unite all things under Christ, which actually makes very good sense in the context of our passage, because we learn from this passage that all things have been created by Christ and for Christ. In this passage, we also see that God's will also includes the rich display of his grace in our union with Christ, even us who were Gentiles and outsiders to God's promises. We see that this is spirit-revealed knowledge of God's will, that Christ is in us, the hope of glory, that we are in Christ, that we are united with Christ. Yet it is this knowledge that is supposed to propel us to worthy living, the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that is revealed by the Spirit. Why? Verse 10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way. Have a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing him in every way. God, uh, Paul prays that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, would impart wisdom and knowledge of God's will, God's eternal will, so that people would have worthy lives. And as a parenthetical comment, I would like to mention, why do we do Sunday schools and teaching in this church? It is that we would grow in knowledge, but that this knowledge, as the Spirit starts to seal it on our lives, would have the effect of helping us to live lives which are holy and pleasing to God, lives which are worthy of our Lord, bearing fruit in every good work. And it It ends up being a virtuous circle. This knowledge which is revealed by the Spirit helps us to live lives which are worthy of the Lord and uh, helps us to live lives which are pleasing to him, bearing fruit. And then it continues that we grow in knowledge of God, which again continues to feed our lives which are worthy of God, pleasing of him. I think that in these verses also we see a good definition for uh, for, for groweth. What is Christian groweth? It is a life worthy of our Lord that pleases him in every way, bearing fruit, faith and love for one another, growing in the knowledge of God, which all springs from gospel hope. Verse 11, he continues that they would be, uh, sorry, that they would live a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way, bearing fruit, And then he continues saying that they should be being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience. Paul continues that this knowledge of God, and he prays actually, he's not instructing them at this point. This is partly uh, him detailing and filling out the contents of his prayer. He prays that this knowledge of God would propel them to holy lives that are increasingly strengthened by God himself. It reminds me a little bit of Philippians chapter 2, where after Paul mentions this Christ-exalting hymn, which you will all remember, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, he continues on and says, Therefore, my dear friends, 
As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It is God who does the work in our lives, and even as the gospel has had an effect on our lives, it is still, we still require strength, we still require to grow in our reliance on God. Our knowledge of God and of his truth and our holy living is not supposed to bring us to a place where we can work in isolation from God. We only grow into more and more reliance on God, requiring more and more of his strength, requiring more and more of the truth of God to strengthen us as we go from day to day. Growing in strength as a Christian is not growing apart from God, but growing into requiring and needing God for everything and everything that you do. His prayer continues. He asked that God would strengthen them by all of God's power with his glorious might so that they might have great endurance and patience. Sorry, I've lost myself. Verse 12. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Inasmuch as they are a display of the fruitfulness of the gospel, and why do I come back to this? The fact that even though the gospel has had its effect on their life, they require strengthening. And this strengthening comes from God, and it needs to be, it both produces and it results in joyful thanks to the Father. Joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. It is Christ our Savior by the request of the Father who comes and qualifies us for salvation. In fact, it is the indictment of the people in the church of Colossae who have been leading them astray about details of how they should be worshipping angels and asceticism and how they become puffed up in their mind. And what does Paul say? All of these things disqualify you. Where it is Christ who uniquely qualifies us for inclusion in the inheritance of the holy people of God. He continues on saying, You who are in on the secret, you who know the mystery of his will, you have been strengthened by God for endurance and perseverance. Be strengthened by God with the same strength that that was used to raise Christ from the dead. Do not let go of Christ but be tightly united with Christ who gives us life, the fountainhead of life of all the body. Christ who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of God's holy people. When I think of qualification, Christ who has qualified us, I'm reminded of the words of the great hymn, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, in thy blood and righteousness, with joy shall I lift up my head. As the world falls to ruin, dressed in Christ's blood and righteousness, with joy I can lift up my head. For bold shall I stand on thy great day, on judgment day, bold can I stand. For who ought to my charge shall lay? Who can bring any charge against me whilst through thy blood absolved am I from sin and fear and guilt and shame? Christ has uniquely qualified us. And who can bring any charge against God's elect? Let us give joyful thanks to the Father who has uniquely qualified us to share 
in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of life, we who were once outsiders to God's people and God's promises. We have received every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he continues on, verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. He has taken us from the domination and the dominion of darkness and transferred us and translated us into the kingdom of light. There is surely an association implied here between the darkness and death and light and life. And back in a time when it was thought that light came from the eye of a beholder rather than entered the eye of the beholder. A beautiful picture is painted by the hymn writer of Christ coming into a dungeon and shedding light with his eye where we lay cast down, laying dead in our transgressions and sin and chained without life and without hope and without God in this world. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night Thine eye, Christ's eye, issued a quickening ray. I woke, my dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. He has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his Son, the Son that he loves. Hallelujah. Verse 13, he has rescued us. Who is the he in this passage? It is the Father, the Father works in our salvation. And we see the work of all the, all the members of the Holy Spirit. It is Christ who comes and saves us and who bears our punishment. It is the Father who sends the Son. It is the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to the truth of God. And Paul prays and he continues to remind us that God's purpose has been executed. God will save a people to unite under Christ. We see the completely cooperative nature of the Godhead in our salvation, completely God-sided, without requiring any input from us. A covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit coming to save us. And here it results in our salvation. The Son comes, and the Spirit reveals to us all wisdom and truth in Christ. And God the Father saves the people, maybe even a bride for the Son. He continues and expands on who the Son is. He is the beloved Son, the one with whom we have been united, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So by way of recap, we have, he prays that God would give them perseverance and endurance by God's strength that will flow from and flow unto joyful thanks to the Father that flows from a heart that rejoices under being that rejoices in being under the kingly dominion of Christ himself. This joyful thanks that we stand as the redeemed, forgiven subjects of the king of the kingdom of light, having been transferred from the dominion of darkness. Christ, the prayer continues, this is the beloved son, our savior, our redeemer, the one who has purchased us and who has forgiven our sins. Now, at this point in the sermon, do I come and I try to tell you, go and try harder now. Here are all the points that you are supposed to put into your prayers. Go and pray likewise. But no, as we come week after week, I would like you to see Christ this week. And in seeing Christ, that will produce and inspire the prayer that you need to pray. I would encourage you, come 
have as much gospel-centeredness as Paul the Apostle prayed for the church at Colossae. Sometimes we as preachers have some misplaced expectations. We hope that this, uh, this sermon, you will come to us in 20 years' time and say, you know this sermon I remember, 20 years ago you taught me how to pray, and ever since I have been praying and it's been great and I've been waking up early in the morning. But I don't have any grandiose ideas of what the effect this sermon will have in your prayer life. But I do pray that this week, having seen something of Christ in the prayer of Paul, and even in my stumbling preaching this morning, that you will see Christ for all that he is and that you will be urged to pray. You will see him who is the builder of the church. For it is indeed Christ who is the one that says, I will build my church that you will come to see Christ as the gardener and the church as the garden. You will come to the husband of the bride the one, the ch- come to, and see that we are the one that has truly been cleansed and washed by the word. Finally, I hope that you will come to Christ the head, the one who does have the authority to rule and govern, the king of the kingdom who has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So what is my wish this morning? That you will gl- glimpse again the Savior through these words, through this prayer. And herein, I think, lies the antidote for our struggles in prayer. I've been, reading, listen, uh, been listening recently to The Lord of the Rings, the unabridged version, it's 60 hours long. And Aragorn, the ranger, who eventually becomes the king, he speaks to the hobbits. And he says, the problem with you hobbits is that Gandalf is greater than you shire folk know. As a rule, you only see his jokes and his toys and his fireworks. But when Gandalf is revealed in the Hall of Elrond, he's revealed as a lord with wisdom on his brow and strength in his hand. Strider the ranger even, when the hobbits are asked about the ranger, he says, well, I just thought that he was one of the rangers. And Gandalf says to him, well, don't you know that the rangers, they are the ones of the unbroken line of Elandil, the kings that are to rule in the city of Gondor. What was the problem with the hobbits? They didn't see Gandalf, and they didn't see Aragorn for who they truly were. So what is my hope this morning? That you would see some of Christ for who he truly is. Last week we learned that we belong to Christ. We've been included by his grace. We've been united in Christ. And what is my prayer today? That you would see something of the greatness of Christ in our salvation. John Calvin in his commentary on the book of uh, Colossians says, For this was the only remedy for fortifying the Colossians against all snares by which the false apostles endeavor endeavor to entrap them. To understand accurately what Christ was. For how comes it that we are so easily carried away by so many strange doctrines, but because the excellence of Christ is not perceived by us? For Christ alone makes all things suddenly vanish. Where is the place where the things of earth grow strangely dim? It is in the light of his glory and grace when we turn our eyes upon Jesus. So to finish our sermon, I'm going to do something a little differently. I'm going to read a passage of scripture and then I'm going to pray. 
and then we will finish the service. This passage I will read continues on talking about the Son whom the Father loves, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness. Verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firmed, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. As we pray this morning, I would ask you to bow your heads, but keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes on the verses in this passage. I'm going to start, and as I pray, it'll be maybe a little longer prayer than you're used to, but I'm just going to step through some of the things that we have talked about this morning and include them in our prayer as a church this morning. Father, I would like to thank you that you are the Lord and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have loved us, Lord. I thank you that as I look around this church, I see those who have been saved by your grace. I thank you for the faith of those that is represented by those in the church, Lord. I thank you that the love that they have for one another. I thank you for this love and faith that has come, Lord, as a result of the message of your gospel, Lord because of the hope that we have stored up for us in heaven. I thank you that your gospel, Lord, continues to bear fruit around the world. And even here, Lord, we stand 2,000 years after this letter has been written, still recipients of your grace and your favor, still seeing the results of your gospel, Lord, of the news of Christ, of the news of your grace to us, Lord. Lord, as we come before you, I pray that you would fill us with knowledge of your will, Lord. Help us to realize that all this knowledge, Lord, has come to us by your Spirit. Help us now, Lord, to live lives which are worthy of you, Lord, pleasing you in every sense, Lord. Help us to increasingly grow in our knowledge of you, Lord. Strengthen us, we pray, Lord, for even though we are works of your grace, Lord, we grow into greater and greater reliance on you, Lord. Give us strength, Lord. Give us endurance. Give us patience, we pray. Fill us with great joy, Father, for you have determined and saved us, Lord. You have qualified us, Lord, for salvation through the work of your Son and given us a great inheritance, Lord, along with the holy people of the kingdom of light. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for rescuing us, for transferring us out of the dominion of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of your Son, bringing us under the loving, kingly dominion 
of your son, Lord. We thank you. Thank you for redeeming us and forgiving us our sins. And Father, remind us of Jesus himself, the one who ranks before all things. Help us to see his greatness, the one who created all things for him, for himself, Lord. Help us to see his supremacy, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that all the fullness of the Godhead resides in Christ. Thank you for giving us peace, Lord, through your blood shed on the cross. We who were once alienated from you, Lord, enemies of you, thank you for reconciling us through Christ. And now, Lord, we thank you for presenting us holy and blameless. Spotless we stand before your throne. Now, Lord, we pray this week that you would help us to continue in this faith, establish us and make us firm, and help us not to budge from the hope that we have in the gospel, Lord. And help us, Lord, even this week as we go, to proclaim this gospel, Lord, in each of the places you've taken us to be, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.